This morning, the scripture reading is coming from Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking that he was in their company, he traveled on for a day, and they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. If I'm on here, there you go. Uh, over the years, I've heard a number of times of the 80-20 rule. And that's, uh, where I've heard it applied is in the church context. It's thinking about... Um, volunteers and the life of an organization, really any kind of volunteer organization. But the 80-20 rule will say that you know, 80% of the, of the work or the contribution is really going to be done by the 20% of the people. Uh, and so that's just kind of, you kind of work with that. Anytime you work, I've worked in nonprofits, and you, you expect that. Like you just know that there's a core group of people that kind of carry the lion's share of the load in a lot of the things you do. And of course, a lot of times what you're trying to do is help awaken other people and get other folks to contribute, but, but that's a reality of, of, of a, a lot of life for a lot of organizations. I heard an application of that that I had never thought of before, I'd never heard before this week. I was reading a, uh, a book by a, a former professional hockey player talking about, um, really a written book for players, talking about hockey strategy. So I was trying to get ideas as, both as a coach and as a player myself, just getting thoughts about how to play the game better. But one of the things he said as a, as a player is he actually applied the 80-20 rule to himself. And what he said is as a player, he realized as he moved up through the ranks and was you know, getting an increasingly competitive uh, context that, that 80% of his contribution was coming from the 20% of the things in hockey that he was best at. And that changed when he, got, when he realized that it changed how he prepared himself. Because a lot of times when you're playing any sport or really doing anything, playing an instrument, you know, anything you're trying to get better at, you're usually acutely aware of all the things that we're bad at. You know, we, we kind of say, oh, I, I can't do this, I can't do this. So you try to, to lift those things up. And, and, and there were times he said he would realize, that, okay, there are some things that he does that are real deficiencies in his game. And so there were things that he says, I've really got to improve at this technique or this thing because it's just dragging the team down because I can't do this. But he said for the most part, once he got to the place where his kind of skill levels were all kind of in the zone of where everyone was at, the thing that really set him apart were those handful of things that he was exceptional at. And what he did was he started devoting his practice time to those things. 
he wanted to zero in on his, his, the stuff that he was best at to maximize the contribution he could make to his team. Well, I kind of did a little thought experiment from that. So what is the 20% that the church is best at? What is the thing that the church is really going to define, like 80% of our contribution to the world is going to come from? And it may be an unusual question, but I think it finds a surprising answer here in the story of Jesus at the temple. If you don't have your Bibles open, I'd encourage you to open them to Luke 2, verse 41. It's a familiar text. If you've spent time, if you grew up in a Sunday school, you probably heard this text. It was a text cited at various points, and maybe you heard it when you were thinking about you know, seeing a young Jesus who's smart and wise and able to educate the teachers. Or, you know, I, I remember hearing it a lot because I was one of those that got lost as a kid, so I heard all these stories about you know, Jesus at the temple and identifying with the parents. But there's, it's a story that, that is doing some pretty profound things. But it opens with the actors. And I think we're going to understand the story. We just really need to understand the two key actors in the story. And the, and, and the first are, are the parents. Um, when it opens, verse 41, you have the parents, and, and it has this kind of um, same old, same old kind of language. It, you, verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. You see twice there, you see this emphasis on they do something every year. There's this according to custom. All of that is, is emphasizing the piety of the parents, which is to say the holiness of the parents. These are, these are faithful people that are following the laws, of their, the rules of their faith. Uh, there was prescribed for Jews at this time that there would be three feasts a year that they were expected to celebrate in Jerusalem, the Feast of the Passover being one of those three. And for those actually over the years, as more Jews were scattered and living far away from Jerusalem, it really came down to an expectation that once a year they would all make this journey. So if you're going to be a pious Jew, at least once a year you're going to be making this journey to Jerusalem. And that's what it kind of says. They're doing this as they do every year. You see them making that customary journey. So these are, as we've seen before, Mary and Joseph are presented as poor and humble, but faithful people. These are faithful Jews. They're accustomed to come. And in fact, the Feast of the Passover, the women were not required to go. Uh, it was actually a men-only requirement. So for the fact that Mary was going is especially a presentation of her high piety. She's very loyal. She's faithful. She's going to show, show up even when she doesn't have to. Um, and here they're, they're, bringing on, they're bringing Jesus going up according to custom. And that language again suggests here they are raising their son well. They're raising him in the faith, uh, showing him the way to go. The piety of the parents, the holiness of the parents, is an important piece of the story. It's going to get important as we move on. The second actor is Jesus himself. And that's not something just to throw away. This is the introduction of Jesus as an actor in the, in the book of Luke. This is the first time he acts. This is the first time he speaks. We've now gone through almost two chapters in Luke, and we have seen Jesus talked about. We have seen him described. We have seen things that people have done for him, around him, to him. But now he is acting. Uh, and so he is kind of a set, beginning to take center stage. He is the key character of this story. 
Um, and it's a point, it's not insignificant that here he is doing this at, in verse 42 as a, a 12-year-old. Um, for them, at the time, for, I think for us, we think, perhaps we think Judaism, we're thinking of a 12-year-old, you're thinking of the custom of the bar mitzvah. Uh, the idea of a kind of uh, of a of a boy becoming a man. Well, that that happens much later in the, the the story of Judaism. Here at the time in the first century, thirteen would have been the normal age for a boy to be responsible before God. So the fact that he's doing this at twelve is the idea that he's kind of stepping into his own. This is a little bit of a of an anticipation of what Jesus is to become. Uh, so he is. He is stepping into his own. He's becoming a man. And, and we're going to see him and, and a little bit of a preview of the ministry that's to come. And I think that's a lot of what's happening here in this story of, the Jesus, of Jesus at the temple is that you're getting a preview of various things that are going to be happening in Jesus' life and ministry. And thus, after that, you have this introducing the characters. Then you have the crisis itself. And if you look at verse 43, the thing that I want you to see is that it is Jesus himself who creates the crisis. Uh, And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. This is Jesus being active. It's not that Jesus got lost. That's a little different. This is the story, when I think about this story, I'm always thinking about <clears throat> different stories in my family history. Like I was one who got lost at the mall one time when I was, I don't know, eight or nine years old. I wound up walking home. It was crazy. I like took off 18 inches of snow and I walked two hours to get home because I didn't know where to go, didn't know what to do. So it was this, and they were getting ready to have helicopters come after me. So my parents were just, I, you know, they could feel all throughout my life, my parents have felt this story of the panic because they lived it. They didn't know where I was. They didn't know what had happened to me. That's not Jesus here. Like I was, well, I was an idiot, but you know, what it was, I mean, I didn't go get help and I just decided to walk home because it's the only place I knew to go. Jesus is active here. Jesus is doing something because that's what he wants to do. And if we're to understand the story, you've got to see Jesus as the one who is creating this crisis. The boy Jesus stayed behind. And, and don't overlook that it's, he's described here as the boy Jesus. Um, the, the, the word there is, is the word for child. Um, he is, and actually it's also the word for servant, which some people think may be a little bit of a connection here. And I think it's, it may be subtle, but I think you're going to see a little bit of that echo, the reason why they see a connection in a, a few minutes. But he is a child, but here he is. Maybe to this point he's been passive, but now this is his first action. And his first action creates a crisis with his parents. It creates a crisis with the holy people in our story. I don't think that's a small thing. His first action is to create a crisis. Uh, and so that crisis is, creates pain. The way his mother describes it in verse 48, <clears throat> she says, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. That is vivid imagery. And, I, I, and the way the story unfolds, I mean, it's, it's understated. Luke has a real understated style. But just think of the panic that would be arising here. The boy stayed behind. His parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem. 
So there's this slow discovery. They're traveling in some kind of crowd, some kind of mass thing, and there's different theories about how they might have traveled, that the kids might have been gathering as a group or traveling separately, or, you know, there's all this group that they have, but they think everyone's fine, and they assume the kids, they assume Jesus is safe. They don't think anything of it until they're somewhere away, maybe a day away from Jerusalem, and they realize that night, like, where is he at? And there's this, you can imagine, this ensuing panic to the point that they're actually realizing he's not there. This is not exactly a safe road. There's a lot of robbers and bandits, so there may be a lot of things they might be afraid of. They're traveling in big crowds because it's not a safe road, and they're worried about robbers and bandits and whatnot. So here they are with this ensuing panic, now to the point they're actually heading back to Jerusalem and searching and they're searching for it's not like they find him immediately i mentioned last week i mean even the temple is a big place it's like 40 acres that can you've got you know thousands upon thousands of people that show up for this feast i mean it's massive crowds and big mob and jerusalem itself is just not an easy place to navigate so there's all this sense of where is he at where could he be they're looking for him three days on that third day they find him and there's some debate here about does that mean it's three days from that point are they searching for three days is it the third day since they left jerusalem i don't know that it really matters for us because we could tell like the parents have got to be panicked at this point i mean you think they've got all this weight of the shoulder just being a parent alone you'd think of the panic but now you add to this like this is the chosen child like if you're ever going to fail in your duty i don't really don't want to have like a divine charge on me and then kind of drop the ball here so there's this this panic that is ensuing when when mary says we were in great distress that's a vivid language we can get it and and just again to begin to think about what's gone before and what's coming after one this is an echo of maybe this is the first um the first uh fulfillment of what simeon had said to mary at the temple which is that this is child is going to cause pain there's going to be pain in your heart from this child that what's happening here in this pain and distress is an anticipation of further pain that is to come for her and for Joseph from his ministry. It's, an, it's a first fulfillment and a preview of the crises that we're only going to see more so as Jesus' ministry advance. The other thing is to put in the head right now to think three days. Well, I'm starting to think, what about three days? Well, we have another big three-day thing happens on at the end of Luke, right? Now we're thinking of death and resurrection, if we know the story. And I think there's an echo here, and I want to talk about it in a few minutes. But they're in crisis. There's this distress. They kind of, you know, kind of want to charge them. Uh, I'm going to talk in a minute about them finding him at the temple because of all the places that he's at. They're finding him at the temple amazed at that he's interacting with the teachers um, but they want to know what what's going on they're amazed at his interaction that the teachers are amazed in fact it says verse 47 all who heard him were amazed which is i think suggestive of not just the teachers but actually others around all are now observing jesus and his interaction and he's got this remarkable ability just even just to ask questions a lot of times we kind of i think reinterpret this to suggest that he's actually starting to instruct them Um, but it's really it says in verse 46 that he's asking them questions Um, but 
in the way that he's asking the questions, he's giving this remarkable insight, and it's creating a kind of dialogue. You're getting here a sense of, a, of, a, of Jesus who has wisdom beyond his years, um, and it's, I think, in anticipation of what is to come, which is that he's going to be teaching the teachers. I believe, that's right, that this is the only reference in Luke that uses the word teachers to describe anybody other than Jesus. That word teacher normally is only going to be used of Jesus in Luke. There's other words they have when there's you know, leaders and the religious leaders and scribes and lawyers and all those other things. But Jesus is the teacher. He's the great teacher. And here he is, the first time we see him in an active role in Luke, it's him teaching the teachers. To his parents, they simply don't understand. Uh, everyone's amazed at his teaching, as instruction, as, his, as he answers questions, as he asks the right questions. But they're astonished, verse 48. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. The, 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 these humble, pious people can't understand the pain that he caused. And then you have the very first words spoken by Jesus in Luke. What does he say? It's kind of a, this is his introduction. And you just pause over that and think, that's a significant thing. This is the first time that Jesus speaks. And so if I'm a, a new reader, and I think Luke is imagining, some people are coming to the Gospel of Luke, getting to know Jesus for the first time. Here's the hero of the story. Here's the main character. He's going to open his mouth first time. We've seen him act for the first time, and it's creating tension. It's creating crises. But now he's going to speak for the first time. And what does he say to his parents? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? First word spoken in Luke. Why would I be anywhere else? There's a couple things you can notice there. First, it's that my translation says it's, did you not know that I must be? Uh, we talked about this in our class this morning, but that word there is, um, the Greek word is dei, which means it is necessary. And it's a key term in Luke. That word is, it is necessary, shows up at key moments where Jesus is describing his ministry. You could assemble the it is necessary verses in Luke and have a pretty decent picture of what Jesus sees as his purpose. This is what I'm about. You think about, that's, that's, that's a, a wonderful thing to see, that some people would reach a place where they say, well, this is what I, this is what I do. If you've ever met somebody that really has a strong sense of purpose to the point that would say, hey, I want you to do this, and nope, not doing that, because this is what I'm about. This is what we're here for. This is why I do what I do. The ability to have these boundaries. Jesus has this clear sense of, of who he is and what he's about. It is necessary that I do this. And what he says is it's necessary that I must be in my father's house. Now, that's a contrast. Verse 48 and verse 49. Why have you treated us so? Your father and I have been looking for you. We're worried sick. Hey, it's necessary that I have to be in my father's house. There's a whole sense of Jesus's awareness and it may be a dawning awareness of who his father really is who his real father is and his loyalty to his father in heaven will create tension and crises as he serves at times his earthly father he can't serve necessarily god and family there will be points where they will conflict 
And here he is emphasizing the very first thing that he acts to do in Luke and the very first thing that he says is to make it clear that he has a mission to serve his father. And even the most pious, faithful follower of God will look at him and marvel, will look at him and wonder, will look at him and not always understand, and will look at him and have to conform to his ministry to be a follower of Jesus. There's this rift, this tension. They don't get it. It's a preview of what's to come. They didn't understand, verse 50, saying he spoke to them. But then he returns, and he submits. And he'll submit for years, another 18 years before he starts his ministry in full. He'll continue to submit to them for now. But this moment here was an anticipation of something that is to come that's going to define his ministry and define his, his ministry to us. So what do you do with all of that? And at the end, the very last thing in Luke, before I mean the last thing in the childhood of Jesus is, is a Jesus who's growing. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He's growing physically and mentally and socially and spiritually. And here he is becoming, he's growing into the ministry that he's already previewed for us here at this crisis at the temple. Well, what are the keys to that? Well, one thing is, the first key I'd suggest is that, that humility is the foundation of a healthy response to Jesus. Now, where you see that in the story is that the story upends good people. You don't have really villains in this story. Even our teachers, which readers of Luke and readers of the Gospels, we probably get trained to be a little distrustful of the teachers, but we haven't had any of that yet. And here, at this point in Luke, we'd still be kind of on board, wanting to listen to the teachers. But all of the people are amazed at him. But the people that we've come to know the most is at least really Mary. She's the driver of that family. But it's Mary and Joseph who are faithful, loyal, quietly wonderful people. And the story just upends them. He's stretching them. And even the most loyal, the most faithful here, Jesus is, is leading them to see what it is really to follow God. And in this sense, I think what's happening is the story is anticipating not just his ministry, but it's anticipating the resurrection itself. There's a couple of really interesting connections. One, in Luke 15, we'll be studying it later this year, but in the story of the prodigal son, it's the, the story of you have a, a, a younger son, the wayward younger son. You have a, a father, you have the older son. And a lot of the story, really the heart of the story, ultimately comes down to the older son. That's really who the story is fundamentally about. But we'll talk about that later. But when the father, the, the younger son, returns home, the, the older son is jealous. The father speaks to the older son, and he tells him at the end of Luke 15, he said, look, your, son was, uh, your brother was dead, and now he is alive. He was lost and he is found. It links the idea of being lost with the idea of being dead, the idea of being found with the idea of being alive. Sub that in here in this story. Jesus is dead for three days, and then he is alive as he's found. Suddenly our imagination is filled with the story of the resurrection. And what is the story of the resurrection in Luke but the story of faithful pious people who see the death of Jesus 
and cannot understand it, who mourn when they should be celebrating, of faithful women who show up at the tomb seeking him out, only to find that the whole time he was about his father's business. Actually, another translation of, I must be in my father's house. I must be about my father's business. Jesus here at the temple is helping us, preparing us for the resurrection. The cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection will confound his most loyal followers. They don't expect Jesus to go there, but he does because Jesus is always about his father's business. And the people that need to be led aren't just the folks that are new at this or don't really understand what's going on, but his most faithful followers. Everybody in the story needs to be led by Jesus, which means the most educated and the most pious, the educated here being the teachers, the most pious here being the parents, don't have anything on it. They don't, all they have to do is to humbly come before God in openness, to come before Jesus and to be willing to be led. Humility is the foundation here of a healthy response to Jesus. What, what Jesus is doing, what, what Luke is doing here at the end of Luke, at the end of this chapter 2, is we kind of get through all of this early stuff of the, the early life of Jesus. What he's wanted to do is to kind of rock our expectations, to unsettle us, to feel like we already have all the answers, and to put us as a reader in a place where we are open to considering Jesus anew. And to do that just requires humility. You've got to be able to say, I don't have all the answers if you're going to go searching for the answers that you can only find in Jesus. Humility is our foundation. And the second thing is that the church is then leading others in that humility. Our humility is our act of leadership. The, the fact that you're faithful, the fact that you're pious, doesn't put you above the fray. Um, there's a, actually a danger that we're going to see a lot in Luke is that the more faithful you are, the more earnest you are in your faith, the more you're going to have a temptation of assuming that you can fit Jesus into a box. You kind of have already studied the boundaries. You know who Jesus is. You kind of know all the right answers. You, you know, you've aced those tests. And you feel like you can put Jesus inside a box. And, and Luke won't allow that. Luke will not allow us to keep him in a box because Jesus wouldn't allow it. Jesus is bigger than we can imagine, and he's taking us places that will make us uncomfortable. Even the most pious, the most loyal, the most faithful, he's going to stretch us. He's going to make us uncomfortable. But Luke is saying we, we need to go where he leads. Um, and we as the church, if we can start with the idea that we are unfinished, that we don't have all the answers, but that we have Jesus and we are learning how to follow him. We are inviting others to come alongside us, not as we're the ones with the answers, we need to give you the answers, but that we are fellow students of the master and we want to follow in his way. We want to follow where he goes and we are inviting other students to come alongside us so they can learn along with us. That says to me that that part of this 20% that the church has. 80% of our income will come from our 20, 20, the 20% that we're great at, the thing that we're supposed to be great at. What we offer to the world really is humility. And that's an odd thing to challenge us with. I was thinking this week, you know, that's, humility is not a, 
a valued commodity much in our world today. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting to me, I was mulling over connections that, you know, both our outgoing president and our incoming president are both known for two things. I mean, they have two things in common, at least. They are both known to be particularly prideful. They're both, they're both known for really wanting to get credit. And they're also both known to be notoriously thin-skinned. They can't take criticism well. Um, and I, I've wondered about that. Why is that, that our leaders, I mean, I can't, I mean, the pride thing, maybe it's easier to understand. I mean, I can't remember. It'd be, I'd have to go back a long time, at least a number of decades, to think of a president that we've had in our country that was known to be relatively humble. Um, but this thin-skinned thing is a weird thing, too. What is it about pe- these people that emerge as national leaders that are so thin-skinned? But part of it is that I think our culture, our leadership culture, anchors us in something that just can't satisfy, that, that we're really trying to cling to power that is fragile. And so uh, something about that, I don't fully understand that second piece, but I know what it does for me for certain is that when I'm offering to my kids, here are models of people to follow. Um, if I want to point them to humble people, I'm not looking to national leaders to give them models. Don't follow those people. But you look to Scripture and you see Jesus offering us a picture. What the church needs to be are those who are humbled by the reality of the gospel. It's the church that is first admitting that we are sinners saved by grace. That we are admitting that we are confessing our failings and our inability to save ourselves. We're the ones that have to acknowledge that we aren't sources of wisdom but that we are looking daily to our Father in heaven and through Jesus, His Son, in the power of the Spirit as the one source of wisdom for us. Part of the 20% that the church offers to the world is our humility. And the way we pursue humility, the source of our humility, is the gospel itself. As we embody the gospel story, as we embody the gospel narrative that we are sinners saved by grace, that we are unworthy people saved by a mighty and great God, we realize that it forces us, it it expunges the pride, it pushes the arrogance to the side because I've got nothing to offer here. I've got no claim except that which has been given to me by Jesus. The gospel story uproots all those sources of pride and can lead us as a people who are humble and willing to follow wherever Jesus leads. Humility is in short supply in our world today. And the gospel is the source for the humility that we need. So we kind of look to what's the next steps. You know, I'm, I'm thinking a lot these days about where does our country go from here? Where are we going as a world? What is the church's role in all of this? begins with the humility that comes from the gospel story. What, what, what Luke has done for us here at the end of, of this chapter, this section of Luke, is it's uprooted us. It should have unsettled us. And it's left us in a place where no matter how much we think we know, we realize that Jesus is going to stretch us. Jesus is going to challenge us. And if we're telling the gospel story, we're ready for that. We're ready to go wherever he leads because the gospel is the source of the humility that we need and the world so desperately needs. Let's pray. 
God, I pray for our humility. I pray that you will shape in us uh, a deep and abiding love of the gospel story that embraces our brokenness, uh, that embraces our incapability, and trust and rest in joy in the capability that we find only in Jesus Christ. I pray that the gospel will shape who we are as a people as we go into this world. In Christ's name, amen. If we can help you in any way, please come while we stand and sing.